We're in chapter 11 of Genesis, and we'll begin there in just a moment after prayer. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. I know you enjoyed the meal and the fellowship, so let's pray together. Father, thank you for the beauty of the day. Thank you for the joy of simply being able to get out of bed and to, to do what you called on us to do on this uh, great day. Thank you for the sweet fellowship that we have enjoyed with one another around the table, and thank you for the delicious food. Use it to strengthen and nourish our bodies. Teach us, instruct us today from your precious word in the book of Genesis, and I pray that when we leave, we'll all be saying together, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord, and that we will uh, uh, live for you, be a reflection of Christ the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We are at chapter 11 in Genesis as we continue our series. We've been in Genesis now since January 26th, and we've covered 10 chapters. Um, there are 50 chapters. You do the math. Uh, we'll probably accelerate at a few spots, but um, it's just not easy to just zip through Genesis. So just hope, hope you're okay with that. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11 and then talk about them. This is the story of the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babel. You take your choice. I say Babel. Uh, I say baby. So Babel. Uh, However, a lot of people say it ought to be Babel because of Babylon. And... um, so, uh, to, quite frankly, whatever you say, I'm just going to look at you and say, that's fine. But it, I'm going to try to remember to say Babel, because uh, I think that's the better pronunciation. Okay? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, By the way, there, you may not on the surface recognize it immediately. We'll talk about it as we go along. There is much mockery and derision and thus Hebrew humor in these first nine verses. So if you're looking at it and saying, I don't see that then just hang on for a minute and I'll tell you where it is. Now, chapter 11, we want to understand, is not, chapters 10 and 11 are not chronological, they are thematic. 
chapter 11 really precedes chapter 10 because there we find the nations being spread over the earth. Chapter 11 occurs, but thematically chapter 11 really, or chronologically chapter 11 really happens before much of what we read in chapter 10. For instance, look at chapter 10, verse uh, 25. Two sons were born to Eber. And let me see if you remember how well you remember from two weeks ago. What word do we use frequently that comes from the word Eber? Hebrew. Very good. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan, and Joktan was the father and goes on, on from there. So the word Peleg li- literally means division or a dividing of the peoples. So chapter 11 proce- precedes much of chapter 10, and chapter 11 um, tells us how all of that took place, why it took place. So that's what we want to look at. Right now, so look at verse one. The whole world had one language and a common speech, and it tells us that as people moved eastward. Now, whenever in the Old Testament you find the term moving eastward, it is always a bad thing. It is always a negative thing. Um, it's always a moving away from God, and that's easy to see. Here, but in fact, as we go through chapter 11, we're going to see just how absolutely pagan most of the world was at the, at this point in time. So we've come a long way chronologically from Noah to this time. And instead of man getting closer to God, most men have grown farther and farther away from any recognition of the one true living God. In verse 2, when it uses the word Shinar, they found a plane in Shinar. Shinar is another word for Babylonia. So Babylon, Babylonia. Immediately, whenever we think of the word Babylon, most likely nothing positive comes to your mind about the past or even about today. Because you know today we would be talking about um, Iraq uh, and ancient Babylon, so we don't even have very many positive thoughts about that today. So it says they moved eastward, which also means away from God. They found a plain in Babylonia or Shinar, and they settled there. Now the third and the fourth verse is where we are first introduced in this text to a form of the Hebrew humor or derision. The Babylon or excuse me, the the the, 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 the Babylonians used stop brick instead of stone. Babylon used brick with tar. It's a Babylonian invention. Israel used stone. Moses is saying as he records this, he is mocking the Babylonians. He is saying, who would use brick when they could use stone? So now, all these many years later, we might read that and never recognize that in a a million years. 
but the initial hearers of chapter 11 would have smiled, at least slightly, as they thought about the Babylonians using brick with tar instead of using stone. Who would use brick when you could use stone? That was the Hebrew way of thinking. The intent that the residents of the land had, those who were building the tower, the intent that they have is that they would join or displace God. Building it high into the heavens, we're going to join or displace God. So as we go through these verses, man keeps getting in trouble. Have you noticed a common theme? We go back for earlier in Genesis and we've seen it. Man keeps getting in trouble. And so the flood and now look at what's going on. Man just can't seem to stop getting in trouble. And what is that called? A three-letter word that begins with an S. Sin. Okay. So the Babylonian or the, the people of Babel say, um, we want to make a name for ourselves. We don't want to be anonymous. And we might on the surface read that and say, well, you know, okay, uh, I understand that. But their attitude of heart is one of arrogance. It's one of arrogance. And that emerges from the words of the scripture. It, it's an arrogant attitude on the part of those who are building the tower. They were successful in making a name for themselves. Only it was a joke in Hebrew thinking. So as Moses writes this, yes, oh, they were, they wanted the name for themselves. Well, they got it. They got what they wanted. And as a result, what do we think about them today? Not much. Not much. The only name that counts is that which God gives. Listen to two verses. Just let them swirl around in your mind. Chapter 12, verse 2. We'll get there. Uh, maybe. No, not today. But we'll get there. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. To whom is God speaking? Abram. Soon to be called Abraham. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 They will see his face and his name will be written where? On their foreheads. Okay, so the name that counts is the one which God gives. So tower builders, the tower builders are broken and they are going to be scattered from the place called Babel. Now in in verse 5, we see heaven's awareness of what's going on. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Reminds me of a verse in Isaiah, so I jotted that down and I'll read it to you. Isaiah forty twenty two. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Oh, I thought everybody thought the world was flat. Oh, but the Bible says he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. So I envision God looking down upon his, his creation. 
And here in verse 4, uh, verse 5, we have again Hebrew mockery. You, can you see it? Look at it real closely. Hebrew mockery. The tower is so small that God has to come down to see it. That's the point that Moses is making. It's so little. They thought it was so big. And the Hebrews mocked them by saying it's so little, God had to come down in order to see it. Now, we know, and they knew, Moses knew, God didn't have to come down to see anything. So this is a term of mockery of the Babylonians who thought, oh, look at this magnificent thing that we have built. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be equal with God. Right, right, says God. Sure you are. Psalm 2-4 is another uh, another verse that I thought of. Psalm 2-4 says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That chapter 2 of Psalm, the second Psalm, is why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Then you get to verse 4, and it says God, that God laughs and, and scoffs at man's presumption, at man's arrogance. Now, in verses 6, 7, and 8, we we see the, the results of the divine assessment. So God comes down, the picture that Moses gives. He looks over the situation, and God is not threatened at all by what they are doing in building a tower, but he is troubled to see what could happen if they are not stopped. Their arrogance would only become absolutely unbearable. And so their, their, their delusion of themselves is beyond belief. And God says, we're going to break this party up. We're, we're going to stop this right where it is. So what does God do? He confuses their language and disperses them. And they left the project unfinished. The tower was never completed. So Babel means mixed up or confused. And as a result of that, human pride is judged. Whenever you find human pride in Scripture, it's generally a sinful human pride. And so God judges the arrogance of the people who were building the Tower uh, of Babel. Someday, we read of of another time coming, Zephaniah 3.9, the little prophet Zephaniah. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Ladies, are some of you in shoulder to shoulder? There you go. There's your text. Um, and, and I also think of, of the coming of Christ and His ascension back into heaven, then the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the preaching of the gospel in many different languages understood by people who were there. I've always marveled at that. Here's Peter. John, Andrew, James. 
nobody ever claims for most of them that they were really learned men. They didn't have a college degree. Um, they didn't have any kind of degree. And all of a sudden, they're able to speak languages that they had never studied, that they didn't even understand prior to now, and they are preaching the gospel. You know, it would be kind of like me. Um, I don't I don't know. Let's just pick a language. I don't know Russian. I know net. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> But if I were suddenly begin to begin to preach right now in Russian, fluently and and accurately, you'd know something's up. And it, it just, for them, the day of Pentecost is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, well, I don't know how I got off on that. But anyway, at Babel, the division, the disbursement of the peoples and the confusion of, of the languages... It's a fascinating, fascinating account. So when, when you look at it and, and dwell on it, read it again, dissect it verse, verse by verse, word by word, and remember the, the mockery and the derision that maybe, maybe you hadn't noticed that before. So now you'll never be able to look at it quite the same again as God, through his servant Moses in the writing of this, is mocking the builders of the Tower of Babel who thought they were so high and mighty and they were going to be on a level with God. And God says, no, no, you're not. God has the final word. Okay, we could really camp out there for a long time. Really, there's there's so much there, but I I want to keep moving so that we'll finish before the next millennium. Um, So we're going to talk about Shem to Abraham. That's verses 10 through 32. So before we read any of those verses the scattering following Babel is a scattering of mostly pagan, idolatrous people who may have been descendants of Noah through either Shem, Ham, or Japheth, but who were far away from the one true living God. There are a few exceptions, but not many. So look where man has come following the flood. Verses 10 through 32 take us from Noah to Abraham through Shem as God works to keep his promise to bless the world through one man and his descendants. Remember God had said, I'm going to bless the world and we're going to see that now unfolding in verses 10 through 32. So God's God preserves the line of Shem through one man like he used Noah And he does it through the faith of one man as he also did through Noah. We call him Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father. You remember singing that song? Father Abraham. So I want us to look at two things in regard to Abraham, his genealogy and his faith. So let's look at his genealogy first, verses 10 through 26. So really quickly, let's, let's look at that. You may say, oh no, not another list of names, but there's some stuff here we need to notice. This is the account of Shem's family line. So notice how God's working to keep his promise, working through the line of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad, or Arphaxad. 
And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, watch real carefully because something isn't here that was here in Genesis 5 when we were looking at a, li- at a, a genealogical list. I want to see if anybody catches it. Verse 12, when Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah, and after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. There's our buddy Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. By now, you could potentially have noticed what is different. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, we read about him a minute ago, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years... He became the father of Sarug, and after he became the father of Sarug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor, and after he became the father of Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah, and after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And here we come, the reason we're reading all this. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We'll stop right there. God has not forsaken his promise, even though most of the people are pagan. Now, he lists ten generations from Shem to Abram. Contrast that to Genesis chapter 5 that we did some time ago when we traced the line from Adam to Noah. Ten generations were listed there. Also, what's different about the way they're listed? Yes, ma'am. Okay, that's good. That wasn't what I was looking for, but that is, that's, yeah, that's true. That's true. Anybody else want to make a guess? What, what? Lives are short. Good. You're very observant. There's still one more, but that's, that's one of the two. Genesis 11, there's a shrinking lifespan. Wonder what causes that? The little three-letter word that begins with S. Sin diminishes longevity. But, There is a term that is used over and over again in Genesis 5 that is not used in Genesis 11. You know what it is? And he died. And he died. He doesn't use it here. That doesn't mean these people didn't die, but he doesn't say anything about their death because... There is a new purpose in this genealogical list, and the genealogy is moving toward a great hope found in God's keeping His promise to bless the world through one man, Abraham, and ultimately through Jesus. Okay.
Now, so keep that in mind. Primeval history associated with the flood and prior to the flood, primeval history ends in verse 26 and patriarchal history begins with verse 27. When you think of patriarchal or patriarchs, what are some names that you think of? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, good. So we are moving now into the time of the patriarchs. And that is very, 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 very significant for us. So Shem's genealogy is a bridge of hope to a new era. A bridge of hope to a new era. Go back to verse 16, because that is the dividing point. Verse 16, when Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. Peleg's line results in the great man, Abram, the hope of God's people. Contrast that to chapter 10, verse 25. Um, Chapter 10, verse 25, which says, Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. Where did the division take place? Babel. His And his a brother was named Joktan. Now, look at verse 28, 26. Who do they follow? Who does Moses follow here? Peleg or Joktan? No, he follows Joktan. We're going to follow Peleg in the verses we just read. He follows Joktan. In, in verse 26. So there's a contrast. And the reason he does this is Joktan ends, his, his descendants end in the disgrace of Babel. Whereas Peleg's line culminates with Abraham. So see, there's a difference. You've got Peleg, Grace, Joktan, disgrace. Okay, I don't expect all of us to remember all that, but just just know it's there. The word Abram means he is exalted to his father. The word Abraham means father of many nations. Hope abounds when this genealogy concludes. Peleg's line... Grace, Joktan's line, disgrace, God showing his grace to the nations. So we come to verse 27, and we find Father Abraham and his faith. So we've looked at Father Abraham's genealogy. Now we're going to look at his faith. And, and let's read, um, we're almost out of time, but let's read a little bit. Let's read verse 27 through 32. This is the account of Terah's family line. Who's Abram's father? Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Well, look at that little detail thrown in there. We got, does the Bible have anything to say about Lot? You bet. All right, verse 28. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died. And whose son is Haran's? Lot. Oh. So that's why Abram was taking care of Lot, because Haran was dead. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldees in the land of his birth. 
Abram and Nahor both married. Here you go. Here's your ladies' names. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And we will see that not only here, but several times in the book of Genesis. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. What did they do that for? Oh, okay, we're going to find out in the next chapter. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Why did they do that? We'll find that out too. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Now we get to chapter 12 when we find out how they ended up going to Canaan and why they end up going, uh, going to Canaan. So understand this as we think about Father Abraham. We've got about one minute. Abraham comes from a pagan background. He comes from a pagan background. Terah, his father, had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Lot will make life hard for Abram. Haran died early, so Abram looks after his nephew Lot. Sarah, Abram's wife, we don't know, have a whole lot of information on her heritage. Only when we reach chapter 20 and the drama of chapter 20 do we discover that Sarah is the daughter of Terah. Oops, that's Abram's father. But they don't have the same mother. So Abram marries his half-sister. Okay? All right, hang on. We also learn that she is left childless and seemingly unable to bear a child. It's a huge challenge to Abram, given the fact that God makes a promise to him, I'm going to bless the whole world through your seed. Well, how's that going to happen when my wife can't have children? Oh, God has a plan. He has it all worked out. The same challenge of barrenness will occur to Rebecca and Rachel and later on to the mothers of Samuel and Samson. All that ringing a bell in your reading of the Old Testament. Tira's family, now hold on to your seats. Tira's family, father of Abram, Tira's family were moon worshipers. Uh, what? Yep, they were moon worshipers living in Ur, a leading, uh, a leading city of lunar worship. The city of Ur was dominated by a ziggurat, which was built about 2000 BC, and on top of it was a shrine to the moon god. And we've discovered, archaeology has discovered a royal cemetery there that shows the horror of human sacrifice. And that's where we're going to start next week. So, okay, here's Abram. Abram is raised in a pagan, moon-worshipping home. So was Abram a pagan, moon-worshipper? Yes, he was. But what happened to change all that? 
God spoke to Abram and he listened and what? He believed. He listened. To See, it makes the story of Abram that much more amazing. Because when we think, oh, Abram must have been born going to Sunday school and believing in God. No, he didn't. He did not. He was not raised believing in the one true and living God. So the fact that he heard God's voice and believed and acted on it makes Abram, Abraham that much greater in our estimation. So we're going to be camping out with Brother Abraham for a few weeks. And I hope that we enjoy every minute of it because he is one of the most amazing characters in all of Scripture. So, unfortunately, two weeks from today instead of one, but we'll pick up there two weeks from today. And I'm going to start right off with a verse that shows you that Abram's context of life as he grew up was pagan. We're going to start with a verse that, that shows that, which you may already know, but maybe not. Okay? Going to be fun. Are you on for the long haul? Okay, well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, we read these verses. We're utterly amazed. I think about Abraham and the way he was raised and, and the fact that he heard the voice of God and he believed and he acted on that belief. And the world has never been the same. And I'm thankful. I'm so very thankful. And I pray that as we hear your voice speaking to us, through Scripture and, and the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, that our reaction would be as Abram's was, one of belief followed by action upon what you tell us. Carry us safely from this place. We look forward to being back together again in Christ's name. Amen.